Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. Welcome to episode 123 of the Garden DC podcast. In this episode, we talk all about cover crops and preparing our growing beds for winter with Gary Polarchik of The Rusted Garden. The plant profile is on fuchsia, and we share what's going on in the garden as well as some upcoming local gardening events. This episode, we're joined by Gary Polarchik of The Rusted Garden. We're going to talk all about cover crops and winter bed prep. Welcome, Gary. Hi, Kathy. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me. And I'm surprised it's taken this long for me to get you on, but I think this topic is perfect for us to discuss today. Very timely, of course. Mm -hmm. So before we dive into all that transition from our harvest and summer season into the cool season and winter, let's talk about Gary and his gardening background and maybe dial it all the way back to baby Gary. And were you born with chlorophyll in your veins and a green thumb? It's possible, but it, I think it really came from my, my grandfather. And just on the side mm-hmm. note, Gary actually means gardening or some form of that. So I don't know, it all came to be. But my grandfather would come out when I was in, let's say, second grade-ish, and he'd bring a bag of tomato plants um, in a brown bag a Maxwell House coffee tin, which was blue back then, and it was filled with lime. But he would come in, he would show me how to plant, he would drop in some cu- cucumber seeds, and that's a really kind of fond memory for me. And that's what got me started with gardening. So the passion was really ignited at that early age. And, you know, I didn't like weeding, I didn't like doing all the work, but I kind of marveled um, looking back at just, you know, how a couple of seeds, a small transplant can grow mm-hmm. into so much. And that kind of just set me on my journey, bringing me all the way up to here, which pretty much took off the YouTube channel, the Rusted Garden, all that about 10 years ago. But I've been gardening pretty steadily, maybe for the last 20 years or so. Once I got married, got a townhouse with my wife, and I just started really um, on a deck, kind of took everything I knew and just kept learning and talking and learning and talking about gardening for years. And moved to this homestead, which is what I like to call it because we upsized when my kids moved out. But it's two acres. It was flat. There was nothing here. So I got to, I was able to take all my experience from the years, everything I learned on the internet from other people and build a garden from scratch. And that's been a lot of fun for the last four years. Wow. That's a different journey to go from smaller to bigger growing space as you retire. Yeah. I mean, people kind of said, what are you doing? You should, you know, go somewhere warm. And I I like the Four Seasons of Maryland. It's warm enough here. Mm -hmm. Um, But I love the garden. And we wanted enough space for grandkids and people to come over and just kind of walk the property. And it's been wonderful. So was it always veggie gardening that you were into? Or you also do some ornamental gardening? It was primarily vegetable gardening to start. But over the years, I mean, I've mixed in herbs and flowers, I am growing a lot of different edible annuals, like um, celosia is something we grow here as an annual, but in other countries, they grow it for um, a vegetable, and you can eat the leaves and and kind of enjoy the plant that way. But it's primarily vegetables, fruit trees, canes, strawberries, 
and you know whatever kind of comes around each year that's new i might like look into some different things figs are a big thing just added in elderberry mm. trees um, I can't get the hardy kiwi to grow around here. I don't know if you have any tips on it or anybody has tips, but I've been growing it for seven years, male and female. Can't get that to go, but you know, that type of stuff. So it's growing, just not fruiting oh, for it's, you. Yeah, it grows crazily, but it does yeah. not provide fruit or it doesn't even mm. flower, but that's another story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If any listeners have tips for Gary about that, I've seen very rampant hardy hardy kiwi vines and a few fruits on some of them but i'll have to ask the next time i see the fruit what their trick is for that and so can you describe where you are in maryland in relation to maybe baltimore dc and maybe a little bit about your climate and soil sure so i'm sort of in the middle of dc and baltimore right off of people are familiar 95 and 32 and I would, I mean, the zones are kind of getting washed out, in my opinion, over the last years because it's just getting warmer and warmer here. But I'm in Maryland zone seven. Um, I can grow really from really middle of March. I can start and I can grow into nowadays into later November before the heavy frost start rolling in. So we have a nice long season. Soil here starts out pretty much as red clay. And then slowly over time, you know, I amend it. I use a lot of compost now. Now that I have more space, I am just making tons of compost. And that's really changing the structure of my soil. But slow and steady with the soil. doesn't have to be perfect to begin with. And, you know, plants want to grow. Um, so far, so good. Good. And are you mainly growing in raised beds? Or how are you starting each of those new beds on this property? So one of the things with the uh, rusted garden is it's really a teaching channel. So I want to help people kind of access gardening and give them a better experience by teaching. So when you go into my main garden, you will see raised beds. You will see simple earth mounds and row plantings. You'll see sunken containers, fabric pots, vertical towers. So it's a little bit of everything. Um, Part of what I enjoy with my garden is not only just growing um, and harvesting food is I like to kind of just walk through there. So it's kind of an extension of the room. All of my outdoor spaces are like extensions of rooms from the house. So it's a place I kind of like to walk around with coffee in the morning, just listen to the sounds and look at different things. So the eclectic setup helps me teach because everybody, you know, doesn't have the luxury of space or wants to grow in a smaller capacity, but it's also a place I like to kind of walk around and just do different things in a garden. Sounds very relaxing and rewarding. It is. I I really enjoy it. And what are your favorite things to grow and and eat? Right now, so I like growing more than I like harvesting and eating. So I just, maybe that started with my grandfather and just watching the plants grow. So I love growing everything. I think I kind of look at it as like we're sculpting, you know, you kind of get a blank slate every year of earth, and then you can kind of create with trellises and different sized plants. So I love that part. What I like probably eating the most is I love first peas. You know, I can't wait for the peas to grow and be ready. Um, And then I'm always looking forward to making my first tomato, cucumber, onion salad. So growing the cucumbers, tomatoes, and onions, of course. And then I have oregano, basil, and everything I can put in there. So I get by the end of the season, you know, it's too many tomatoes, too many cucumbers. I'm done with them. But 
come, you know, the end of winter, I'm looking forward again to that first summer salad. Mm-hmm. I always regret you know, not putting up more during the harvesting season, but you're so busy, right? And you're like, I don't want to see one more green bean. And then you forget to freeze some or save mm-hmm. some. And then in the middle of winter, that's when you want it the most. Yeah. And for me, like personal, like growth and kind of building, I want to get more into canning and storing and everything that goes along with exactly what you're saying. Cause it's here now, but you know, January 15th, I might be looking for something. Mm-hmm. I think the thing I crave the most in the wintertime is fresh pesto. Yeah, and right. And we can kind of make that and store it if we <laughs> just get it onto our schedule. <laughs> if we're not so greedy or so right. busy. <laughs> so, yep. Because I'm consuming all the basil I have. So, um, that brings us to at the end of the season time, September ish or so. We still have plenty of tomatoes on the vine, lots of peppers, other things still chugging along a bit, but we want to transition to some of those cool season crops or give the beds a break um, so that they can recover for the winter time and give us great growth for next spring. Uh, how and when do you make those decisions? So they the decision starts in August and hopefully like other gardeners or hopefully not maybe, but maybe I'm the only one come middle of July, I'm starting to get beat up by the heat and humidity. So I'm getting tired out and tired of, you know, taking care of the garden. But as August starts rolling in, I'm starting to think about the fall garden and kind of getting my energy back with the cool weather that's starting to approach. So I start looking in August for plants that are beat up. Um, I start taking them out. I do a lot of succession planting. So I actually have cucumber plants still growing um, and I'm harvesting them right now, which is pretty cool. But the squash come out, the zucchini come out, um, some of the winter squash comes out and I'm just slowly kind of opening up different beds. I will start a lot of plants like broccoli and cauliflower as a seed start so that I have transplants and I just start tucking them in slowly. Much of my garden now, except for tomatoes and peppers, um, has been pretty much transitioned over to the cool weather crops. And for me, that starts August 15th and then pretty heavily planting or seeding through the first three weeks of September. Hmm. So you're doing it a bit on the early side from a lot of local gardeners I know. People just don't want to give up on those last few tomatoes. Yeah. And I mean, I d- so for instance, I had, let's just say about 30 tomato plants. So I suffer from the same thing. But in August, I took out 15, maybe 20 of them. So I kept the 10 strongest plants. So it was sort of a compromise. Because once the the soil starts cooling down and the cooler rains start coming, the tomatoes aren't going to do a whole lot. So I'm also eating lots of green tomatoes. So we made batches of fried green tomatoes. So that's one way to really kind of still use your tomato plants. But as for them kind of ripening and and going much further, at least at this point, it's probably just not going to happen. I don't want to say it too loudly, (laughs) but it's time Mm -hmm. to pull them out. Yep. And you made a reference there to the soil temperature cooling down, which I think a lot of gardeners are starting to realize now that that's so much more important than the air temperature. Yeah, and that's something over the last years that I've been kind of experimenting with and did a lot of work this year with using shade cloth to cool the soil. Um, By cooling the soil from that, you know, 
summer sun beating down onto it. And actually the top two inches, couple of inches can get up to 90, 100 degrees. I'm able to help my tomato plants continue to grow and thrive and bear fruit versus if you don't use the shade cloth, that soil heats up so much, the root system heats up, the plant gets a signal that um, it's not really safe to you know, grow fruit. So they drop flowers and sometimes drop fruit. So really focusing on soil temperature can extend the production of your summer crops. And then it also gives you an idea of when it's time to kind of make that transition over to the cool crops. So I, and you did mention, I started, I start a little bit early with my cool crops and I kind of do experiments to see how they do. And just going on that notion of the, the warmer temperature, the radishes that I put in, say in the middle of August or beginning of August, they pretty much just grew really quickly, didn't develop a bulb and grew lots of leaves. That's because the soil was too warm. So, you know, it's a little too early in August for radishes, but, you know, beginning September is a great time for your, your radish and other cold crop plants. And so for the shade cloth that you're talking about, is that the Rime, the cover cloth, or is that one of those silver kind of gray shade cloths that's held above the soil? It'd be held above the soil. So it comes in black or green or sometimes like aluminum and silver and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's kind of that netting. I always think of like um, mash when I see, yeah. the, you uh -huh. know, the, the, the camouflage tent covers and mash when I see those shade, that type of shade. And that's cloth. what, it, yeah, exactly what it is. And you can buy it all the way to a 90% shade, which means it lets in 10% light. But I recommend mm. you just go in with a 50% shade cloth, maybe higher in the Southern states, but it will make a very big difference, especially with tomato plants and even keeping your cucumber plants going. If you use some sort of shade cloth. Um, I also use cattle panel arches aimed mm -hmm. rainbowed towards the sun. See if I can describe this um, rainbowed towards the sun. And then I grow green beans up the side. So the green beans will take over and, you know, grow leaves that will create shade. So when that Southern sun is coming down, it hits the beans and then it shades um, the soil under there. And my tomato plants are able to kind of do a little bit better. Interesting. Yeah, I've only been using the regular row cover, the Rime mm -hmm. fabric to cool things down. Or at times I've also used a, like a two by four board over little seedlings, like a, until they emerge mm -hmm. to keep the soil moist and damp underneath in that August heat. But yeah, the shade cloth sounds like a great alternative. Yeah, and it's fun to use. It, it can be a little unattractive <laughs> all over the garden, but the benefit is wonderful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can imagine between my ghost cloths, like I call the cover cloths, and a bunch of shade cloths, <laughs> that would be most of the garden at that point. So we're transitioning, taking out those summer crops and into the cool season crops. But there are some beds that we're going to leave uh, not planted, and we have to make decisions about those. What do you usually do with those fallow or empty beds? So, I mean... Prior to being able to grow or really compost at a high level, um, I did enjoy using crimson clover. So I would use a cover crop and mm -hmm. it's an annual. And that's kind of the most important thing. If people are thinking of using cover crops, I mean, they're mostly all annuals, but you just want to make sure you're getting an annual. I would seed the bed and I would, I would kind of just let it go and do its thing. Um, you know, typically in the beginning of September, Nowadays, because I'm 
doing a lot of different videos, I'm using most of my beds. So I might use a combination of clover. Um, I put down leaves, compost. Sometimes I just cover it with the tarp. But I like using the cover crops because of the benefits that it gives your soil. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk about some of those benefits and some of the different cover crops we can choose in a minute. But I, yeah, I like a heavy leaf for compost cover sometimes if you can't get a cover crop started or just waited too long to get the seed started before it gets cold or um, straw. So that's the other thing that I'll use is a chopped up straw that usually still stays pretty damp and that helps at least keep the weeds down. Yeah. And I think, I mean, a better way to explain it, um, and I use um, straw too, and I always confuse, like one of them has more seeds, like a bale of hay or a bale of straw, but I always forget which is which. Hay is the food and straw is straw, <laughs> just the straw part. All right, got yep. it. You don't want to leave your bed if you're going to put in crimson clover or you're going to use straw or leaves or mulch. You just don't want to leave it bare because it doesn't do much except kind of sit there and it can erode a little bit. But by putting down that organic layer, you're going to be feeding the worms and the microbes and they'll be doing different things in the soil. So that's going to benefit your beds that are sitting there too. When we get to the, you know, the cover crops, I mean, the root systems aerate the beds. The leafy greens that you chop and drop later on will give back nitrogen, but you just don't want to leave it bare. You want something growing in there or you want organic matter sitting on top of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it stops the soil erosion, erosion, stormwater management can break up and kind of give you a little bit of aeration in there for soil compaction and adds organic matter. But I also find the weed suppression and insect control. You know, to start off the season fairly fresh in March to come out to the garden and not have to do a ton of prep work is so much to thank your fall self for. <laughs> You're just starting off pretty easy that way. I mean, and I call it putting your beds to sleep. And you're right. You put them to sleep, you, you tuck them in, and then it's really nice come spring to get started with something fresh. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of disheartening when you arrive at the plot, you know, in March or April, and you have to do a ton of weeding just to even get started because you want to get ready and going. Mm -hmm. I agree. And so for the clover that you mentioned, does that need to be tilled under or uh, chopped off um, before you start planting into it? So and now I don't do, I, I mean, I don't mind turning my garden with a shovel here and there and stuff like that, but I'm, you know, definitely don't recommend tilling anymore. Um, you can, you can do it and it's not going to be the end of the world, but I like the structure getting set up. So I just grow the cover crop, usually the crimson, let that root system kind of go in there, do its thing. It has a tap root. And I just chop it and let it fall to the ground. If it's not going to be broken up or it's not going to be used in time sitting on my bed, I will just take it and I'll put it into my compost pile. But I'm leaving the roots in there as they are. When I go to plant, you know, I might loosen the soil a little bit. If Well, I will loosen the soil a little bit if I'm planting seed. If I'm planting a transplant, I'll just dig the hole that I need for that and let it go. I like more and more over the years, letting the root systems of the plants remain behind and letting kind of nature mm -hmm. take, take care of it. Yeah, I think there's a couple benefits of that. So first, we're leaving the roots in and then when that organic matter decays, that's adding it back in and giving a little bit of soil compaction um, fighting there. Right. But also, 
not ripping it out by the roots is not bringing up more weed seeds from that bank in the soil and bringing them back up to the surface. So I find that to be a lot easier just to chop it right off at soil level. Yeah. And a lot of people don't know, is it, um, I guess it's because of light. I mean, I always used to say because of the depth, but anyway, weed seeds will go down to a certain depth and they know not to germinate for whatever reason. They're not getting the light or they're not getting the warmth that they need. So you're right. If you constantly turn your soil, you're bringing up all these new weed seeds and people might be like, where are these weeds coming from? There are no weeds, you know, flowering and dropping seed. It's because they do sit in the soil. So just leave it alone and you don't have to deal with that problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Keep those weeds buried. (laughs) Those little seeds that can pop up there. Um, So let's start going through some of our cover crop options that the ones that do best for us here in the mid-Atlantic. And maybe we'll start off with um, hairy vetch. I think I'm pronouncing the Latin correctly. Vicius velosa, velosa meaning hairy, and vicia vetch. Um, It's a great nitrogen source. And I grew it one year, and I must say it grew very fast and well. What I didn't like was at the end of winter, early spring, it was still pretty thick and you pretty much had to get a tiller to get it out of there. So that, yeah, so I've not grown that and I always see it and I'm always curious to try it out. Um, and I'm just asking for my own benefit. So the root mm-hmm. system would be that kind of dense that you yeah. couldn't really plant around it. Yeah, hairy vetch is used for erosion control on slopes a lot, and right. now I know why. Right. <laughs> so it is a fast-growing filling in ground cover, and if you are not the type of intensive farmer who's going to come and plow up the field afterwards, don't do it. That's my recommendation on the hairy vetch. Is you, unless you love to till, and we just talked about bringing up the weed seeds and everything else and disturbing the soil, um, that I would say for the small plot gardener, hairy vetch is not for you. Well, I'm taking your word for it and I just took it off my list. I'm not going to ever try it. Yeah. Yeah. Try it maybe in one plot and see, I mean, it is a legume and that's Mm -hmm. a lot of the cover crops that we're going to talk about. Um, that is a nitrogen fixer in the soil and it adds to the topsoil. But again, you know, if you're going to be disturbing the topsoil right after it, uh, I kind of think it's a wash right there. Right. And uh, you made a good point too. Like sometimes I think again, like we were saying earlier, it's most important don't leave your soil bare, but sometimes in the small garden, you may not have to do a cover crop because you are able to can manage that better. And you're putting in a lot of organic matter. Um, and then sometimes we get confused and maybe the vetch is part of it that we start using something that's used on a bigger farming scale. And it's just, you know, it just doesn't fit into the home garden. Mm -hmm. And it's fun to experiment and try them out, you know, different ones and see which ones work for you best. But it's also good to learn from other people's experience and, you know, to ask around, you know, if you're buying seed that can only come in huge pound (laughs) packages, there's probably a reason, you know, it's only sold at farmer supply and that might be why it's not packed for the home gardener. Um, But, you know, try and see what you like. So 
let's interrupt the cover crop discussion for a second to talk about another thing that large-scale farms can do that's kind of tough for us home gardeners, which is crop rotation. Um, so let's digress a second just to, to discuss that issue. What do you recommend for somebody, say, with just a 20 by 20 or a 10 by 10 plot? Are they able to even do crop rotation? You gave me a deja vu. I was like, did we talk about this? I was just talking about this yesterday with somebody who works on a, a smaller scale farm, but bigger. I don't recommend crop rotation for something that size. If you are doing cover crops and if you are, if not doing that, putting in um, compost and you're mending your soil, you are really taking care of your soil. Crops are rotated when you're just doing mass plantings and those plants are really taking out all the nutrients of that soil. So they move them and usually they wait a couple of years and they rotate them back or they're doing it for concern over disease and, and insects and issues like that. In a smaller garden, at least in my opinion, moving it from the far left to the far right isn't going to trick the insects. Mm -hmm. They're going to find mm -hmm. it. The diseases, if you think about it, when you started your first garden, there were no diseases there in theory although they were probably hibernating or over uh, wintering in host weeds and stuff like that, they still showed up. So rotating your crops isn't going to do much in the benefit of, you know, keeping disease and pests at bay. Um, and if you are putting in organic fertilizer, like I was saying, and you're amending the soil, then you're really giving it all the nutrients that, that you know, that plot can take. So you're not really suffering. Um, your plants aren't really suffering from growing tomatoes in the same place year after year. Now, if you get a specific outbreak of some sort of nematode or some really big problem, then I would try maybe moving the plants. But I, I to be honest, I haven't moved mine um, with a plan, you know, in the 20 years I've been doing this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I try to do tomatoes from one opposite corner to the other diagonally or across just because anything in that nightshade group but you know realistically in with neighboring plots you know in a community garden it's hard yeah it's right and the the principle behind it is to make sure you're moving your plants to a place that can be healthier and they can have the nutrients that they need and you can do that i think other ways on a smaller scale garden or a home garden Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you do have, as you mentioned, a disease or insect outbreak, you know, you might move into a container or a raised bed for that crop the next year, say it was eggplant or cucumber or whatever it is, wait a couple years and then come back. Yeah. And it's, and I also do recommend on anything that people are doing um, is take notes and, you know, you know, track what you do, what you try see where you have success. Um, if you're going to be moving plants, you know, or maybe you feel like, hey, I want to move my plants, move half of them, you know, leave some of the tomatoes there, move some to the other side and see if you notice a difference. Because I really respect the best way to learn is to actually experiment on your own and, and check out things that you hear and read. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even in small little plots, there could be microclimates, you know, one side a little more raised than the other, or the drainage could be different. So you never know until you try it out. Try it out. Yep. So our next cover crop on our list is Austrian winter pea and another legume and nitrogen fixer. Yeah. Now that one's, I would love to speak of it. I've not used it. Um, mm -hmm. What I do use is I actually use peas themselves. Peas can be bought 
fairly cheaply if you look online um, in the pounds for a couple of dollars and the leaves are edible. So I have actually used the peas planted densely together in an area later in the season. They come up a couple of inches. I actually will eat some of the tendrils and salads, but then I let them go. And, you know, that is the closest I got to anything related, you know, to the mm-hmm. pea. And how dense are you? Because I think, you know, peas being four inches apart regularly when we grant, when we're planting them, are you just doing them like literally cheek by jowl? Really? Yes. Really close. And that depends. Mm-hmm. It, it, the thing is, is the standard cover crops, you can get, you know, a pound bag and it's pretty cheap. If you can find the peas like that, I am just literally dropping them almost next to each other and it it's nice and dense and they do, they do really well, you know, with, with frost and the cooler weather. So it works, mm-hmm. but tightly close together because you really want the root systems going through your soil everywhere and helping break it up. And it does help with like compaction, like you were saying earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I imagine it has to be pretty thick. Um, what I've done before with the, the winter peas is a mix with the rye. Um, so, and that's made it thicker. And so cheek bite, you know, don't have to do as thick for the peas, but I might try your suggestion of really thick planting of peas because again you could be harvesting the the first few tendrils putting them into a stir fry or something and get those and that does bring up one point of objection that i've heard to cover crops and i don't know if you've ever encountered this gary Mm -hmm. people who say it's wasteful to plant a cover crop that you're just going to turn under or chop down and that how could you waste those peas and not be growing them for actual food? So I get that a lot because Mm. I grow so much for teaching that some of the food will just rot on the vine. Um, And I do try and give it away and you'd be surprised that every, you know, shelter, doesn't necessarily want to take food or they're not set up to take food. And I give away tons to neighbors. So I feel mm-hmm. like I cover the base. What I say to that is those seeds would not have grown if I did not plant them. So what's the difference <laughs> in, in a kind way? Because I'm not going to plant 500 pea seeds, you know, um, they're not necessarily there's not necessarily a shortage, so I don't feel like I'm wasting it. I also feel like I'm giving the peas to nature. I'm giving it to the worms. I'm giving it to the soil biology. So it's not just about me eating it or other people eating it. So I am contributing back, you know, to the natural ecosystem. So as long as I feel like there's a benefit from it, I don't personally feel like, you know, I'm wasting it. Mm-hmm. And to me, my answer is always you're feeding the soil yep. and then the soil feeds you. So it's kind of, you know, a 360 thing. So in that way, but I can see if there was a seed shortage, say, right. you know, you might turn to something else, uh, but in the current argument, that's not the case. Yeah. I mean, I'm always sensitive to that. And there's actually, I um, work with a seed company and it's coming out that there's a shortage on like green beans and stuff like that this year. Mm. So those last few green beans, (laughs) if you have them on your vines right now, let them dry and collect those green beans to plant next year. I'm doing that exactly. I actually let green beans and uh, cow peas go so that Mm -hmm. I can have dried beans for the winter, but they'll they'll be just as good to uh, 
you know, hang on to. In fact, my garden actually reseeds itself because I leave some of the pods on there. So most of the green beans and cowpeas that are in my garden just self-seed and I just let them do their thing. Yeah. And that's a, a nice cycle to have there if, you know, they keep coming back for you. But yeah, so everybody hold on to those last few. Don't eat them all. <laughs> that's the other temptation um, when you're trying to save seed, especially when it's something like peas or beans that, oops, I ate the ones I was supposed to save a handful mm-hmm. for next year. So our next cover crop, you had talked a little bit about your crimson clover. Um, So there are various different types of clovers, Persian clover, yellow sweet blossom clover, arrowhead clover, subterranean clovers. Um, Have you tried any of the other clovers over the years? I haven't. And the the reason being is the crimson clover was inexpensive and easy to get for here. So I do Mm -hmm. recommend people look for what's most cost-effective and and easy to get. And I also did some research. I like the clovers. I like the crimson clover because the root system doesn't get, you know, crazy like the vetch, which I I wasn't aware of. Um, But it's a nice taproot. So when you have a taproot, it's going down deeper into the soil and it's pulling up nutrients from there where your um, vegetables and other crops may not get to. So it's also pulling the nutrients up that are deeper down in the soil, going into the leaves, into the roots. So when you kind of chop it and drop it into there, you're you're pulling up the nutrients. Your top four, six inches of the soil is going to need for your upcoming crops. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I haven't tried any of the other types of clover aside from the white clover or the crimson clover myself. So I might have to experiment with that a little bit. I do know that the arrowhead clover is kind of for drier areas. Um, then ours, maybe I think our winters might be too wet for that. And the Persian clover, um, it doesn't outcompete weeds for some. So I was like, I don't know how good of a cover crop that really is, but maybe in a mix with something else that might work. And it, the crimson is itself is really beautiful. It has a beautiful mm-hmm. flower. Oh yeah. And pollinators love it. And that, to have something in bloom in late winter, early spring, if you can have a few blooms on that at that point for the emerging native bees and the honeybees that are coming out to check things out, that's always great. And I think, and a lot of these um, cover crops are frost tolerant. I think the crimson clover is pretty tolerant to a significant degree. Um, But it does like to be planted when it's a little bit warmer. So you know, now sort of the time in a lot of places and it's getting a little bit late for other places. It still might germinate and it still might grow, but a lot of times getting it in later in August, letting it establish, letting the roots really grow is the best way to use cover crops, um, especially the crimson clover. Mm-hmm. And that does bring up when we're talking about our transition period is some cover crops do need to get started as early as August into September to get their roots established for winter time. Some you could procrastinate a bit and do a little bit later, but it's usually earlier than people want to do it. Yeah. And that's the struggle I have because I want my beds to kind of be maximizing growth. And over the years, I feel like in Maryland that the frost date keeps kind of the heavy frost date or the deep freeze where that inch of soil freezes keeps kind of getting pushed out further and further. So I'm using my beds longer and longer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think we're going to have to adjust in here in Maryland to maybe North Carolina timing for the season soon. I think so. I I, I would agree with that. Then you still have to look out for that, you know, one early frost that gets you. (laughs) So still be on the lookout and, and be checking your weather. 
So our next uh, group of cover crops are the forage radish. And so I've experimented with different radishes and having them as a cover crop, um, specifically daikon radish. Mm -hmm. And I know large scale farmers will do this. And I said, let's try this in a small scale. So I did a four by six bed. Have you ever done any of the forage radish or the daikon radish? I'm actually growing the daikon radish now Mm -hmm. to harvest. I haven't put that in, but that I have on my notes here that peas and radishes in general um, I have used for cover crops. And Mm -hmm. same reason along with the peas, radishes, when the the leaves are tender, you can eat them. You can eat radish leaves anytime. They get a little Mm -hmm. spiny, but you have to saute them down. But radish seeds are really inexpensive too. If you look around or you you search, um, you know, bulk seeds, you can get peas and radishes. And I've I've just used the cherry bell and French breakfast and stuff that I've had left over um, and scatter them, you know, on the soil. And you don't really have to plant them beneath the soil either. You just wet them down and maybe, you know, put some hay on there or something like that or gently rake them in. But they, mm-hmm. they do a good job. And the whole idea is you know, they're breaking up the soil and that's more for what I need um, because of the red clay soil or the heavier clay soils around here. Yep. So the idea with the daikon in large farm fields or like it's a new field or heavily compacted field and you're planting them very thickly, you know, like we said with the peas almost touching together once they've expanded and then you're just chopping off the tops, which as you said, you can consume and leaving the radishes in the soil to decay and add organic material. So they're doing the drilling down literally mm-hmm. with the daikon radish, which is a fairly large radish for you. Yeah. And they get, I mean, they're a good four inches long. Mm-hmm. At least longer, sometimes, yeah. yeah, sometimes they're bigger than any of the carrots I grow. I'll say for those. So I've experimented. The one thing I found that is by, you know, late winter, early spring, when I wanted to plant where the daikon was, some of them have started to rot. Some are pretty woody, but I, they didn't totally die enough for me to interplant with them yet. So I did have to pull a few out. Well, that, right. And that happened with my radishes too. And sometimes they survive. I mean, you can't eat them because they're woody, like you're saying, but sometimes I have leaves coming back on them. So the winters just aren't getting severe enough in January, I guess, or maybe beginning of February, to really freeze them through and kill them off and then give the soil enough time to break them down. I would choose, you know, the peas over over the radishes if people want to mm-hmm. try out something. Yeah. And I would say do the right the radish thing if you have really compacted um, or really hard clay soil. You know, do that for one season and try that out and then work that way back in. I mean, you can just pull out the semi-rotting woody ones and throw them on the compost pile mm-hmm. at that point. Yep. You always need more for the compost pile. Mm-hmm. So our next uh, cover crop that we want to talk about is mustard greens. And so this is something that you might plant to harvest, but also plant very thickly, much thickly, more thick than, of course, you would um, just as a crop itself. And I experimented with this in the past winter. Have you ever done mustard greens as a cover crop? Not as a cover crop, but I agree. They grow extremely fast. They Mm -hmm. love the cold weather. Um, They can be beautiful, too. Like, you can get mustard greens in different colors. But again, you'd want to go with whatever is the least expensive. But they grow extremely quickly and they can be put in a little bit late, you know, compared to some of the cover crops that have to go in 
in August and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I started them, I want to say first week of November last year and got them, you know, up by December pretty thickly by January. The only thing I didn't like is that by, I think February or so they were pretty flattened, you know, with, I think it was our ice and um, freeze thaw cycle. Wasn't the prettiest thing, you know, kind of looked like, stinky old rotten cabbage <laughs> yeah. at that point <laughs> so they will smell yeah not appetizing or at anything at that point but grew pretty thick and pretty nice and those i'd actually gotten in a small size uh cover crop packet specifically i think it was kodiak mustard greens and i believe it was botanical interest it might have been renee's garden i have to check which one of their cover crops so their seed companies now are starting to pack for the home gardener cover crop amounts of seeds like enough for a three by six bed or so um and so you don't have to go to online catalogs or to farmer supply to get those really good cover crop seeds now yeah and i and i do encourage people always to look around and always look for bulk seeds discount and now what you're saying is coming up that's wonderful you know you just don't want to overpay i'm pretty sensitive to budgets Mm -hmm. and you know, it's it's kind of like that thing. Um, if you go to a garden shop to buy a ringed raised bed, you might mm. pay ninety or a hundred dollars for it. If you go to a store to buy a fire ring for burning wood, you might find the same exact metal ring for forty dollars. So I don't, mm. you know, I I just encourage people to keep looking and keep searching because you'll be surprised at what you can find online when you just kind of shop around. Mm-hmm. And you can do group purchases. So mm-hmm. say you're at a community garden or you and a few friends are looking for, you know, several pounds of peas or rye or whatever it is. Um, and if the minimum order is 10 pounds or whatever it is, then you could break it up amongst yourselves. So that will bring the cost down as well. And seeds will store a long time. A lot of people don't realize, you know, when you buy a pack of seeds, if you stick it in a Ziploc bag, keep it in the house, they're going to last um, a good three years to five years. I've had seeds that lasted seven years or longer. So take care of them and just use them the next year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, store them well. I would say glass or metal is a good place to store them too to keep them out of any moisture is, is your enemy for the seed storage. All right, so our last group of cover crops, I'm going to call the grains. So there's several. There's rye, barley, spring oats, canola, rye grass, have you experimented with any of those yourself? I haven't used them for cover crops. I actually grow hop, hops vines, which are really easy to grow in Maryland, if, in case anyone's interested in growing hops. I tried growing rye and barley um, seasonally to see if I could harvest it, and it was just, it was a lot of work. I mean, it's, I can't really harvest on a small <laughs> scale, and I no. see why you need acres and acres mm-hmm. and acres. Um, but it was a beautiful plant, and again, you know, with these, you just want to make sure that you're planting them in a way that you're not letting them drop seed and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say that the growing your own rye or barley, it's the processing at the end. That's the rough part yep. to do at a small scale. You really, you know, a farmer's combine is a great tool. <laughs> to have. Um, so I've done winter rye mixed with field peas and winter rye on its own. And winter rye comes up almost exactly like cat grass or the wheat grass that you would be growing to put in a green smoothie or something. 
So you want to sew it pretty thickly and it's nice, thick, looks beautiful to start off with. And the great thing about it, Gary, is by late winter, early spring, it has died back and just wispy gone on its own, like boop. So it is like completely almost disappeared. So that's a great thing about some of those annual ones. Um, and you don't have to worry about the seed formation at that point. Yeah, that's wonderful. And I know exactly what you're describing. Mm -hmm. So that's one I highly recommend. If you just have, you know, a few small beds, then maybe that pea and rye combination or just the rye grass. And you know what? If you want to come with scissors and cut a couple handfuls to give a treat to your kitty cats or make a green shake or smoothie for yourself, you know, that's not bad either. Yeah, I would I would go with the ryegrass and I do recommend the peas and the crimson the crimson clover just because it's it's beautiful. Um now of course when you're letting it flower you run the risk of seeds dropping and stuff like that, but mm. I'm not really opposed to anything that grows lightly on there. You just kind of nope. scrape and let it drop and and you're good to go. Yeah, and I would say the fourth one that I would recommend would be the radishes in just certain amounts or certain situations as needed, maybe for your first winter. And then after that, switch over to one of the other cover crops. Yeah. And I think most importantly, the, the principle is wonderful and it is effective. Whatever you choose to do, if you can't do that, just make sure you don't leave your beds bare, you know, definitely put the um, straw down, mm -hmm. compost, or a cover crop, or even a combination. You can do more than one thing. Um, but mm -hmm. really give this, the, the, the bed a chance to kind of build its soil, build the soil life, and, and you know give back to your plants down the line. Yeah, if worse comes to worse, chopped up leaves, pine needles, whatever you can throw on top of there. Yeah, I love talking about compost if we ever, you know, get to, get to that. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to have you back to talk all about composting in the home garden. And I don't want you to leave our recording today without talking about your book. So I have a book. It's called The Modern Homestead Garden and subtitle Growing Self-Sufficiency in Any Size Backyard. And the whole premise was real. And it actually starts out with the story about my grandfather. And that's how I kind of aimed the book is I want people to get excited about gardening. And it kind of takes new gardeners and even seasoned gardeners right through the beginning process and kind of covers everything that you need to do to get started, different tips and, you know, couple of tricks in there. But really, I try and break it down so that we don't overthink it. And that's what I find a lot of times for new gardeners is that we are hit with, you go into the store and you see like 15 kinds of organic granular fertilizers with all kinds of different colors on the package and different names. So I really try and simplify gardening in the book that gives you the confidence to go out, dig, plant, and just have a really good experience. Awesome. And I assume they can order that off your website, Amazon. You can, um, yeah, you can find it on Amazon. I have a website, therustedgarden.com. You mm -hmm. can order it there. Um, but it, you can find it in most places. And I am very grateful to people that want to take a look at the book and people have been enjoying it. So it's been just a wonderful experience for me. Wonderful. So thank you, Gary, for sharing your cover crop experience and your vast gardening knowledge. Any final thoughts for home gardeners as we transition into the cooler weather months? I would say plant and keep planting and take notes and see what grows and how long it grows in your area, because it'll give you a good sense of how long your season goes. And just like we were talking about 
you know, wishing we saved some basil or made pesto. If you stop planting in the fall, you might miss it. So keep planting till you can't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Gary. Thanks for having me. And maybe we can talk compost one day. Mm -hmm. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Fuchsia plant profile. Fuchsia is a woody shrub that is grown as an annual plant in our region. It produces dozens of enchanting flowers on dangling stems that dance in the breeze. Fuchsia makes a great choice for tall containers and hanging baskets. The flowers come in a range of reds, pinks, purples, and whites. There are hundreds of hybrids available of various color combinations with either single or double flowers. They are native to the Caribbean and South America and are mainly hardy to zones 10 and 11. Once the temperatures dip below 50 degrees during the day, they are finished blooming for the season. They prefer part to full shade conditions and rich soils that are kept consistently moist, but not too soggy. They need regular fertilizing throughout the growing season. Fuchsia thrive in humidity and also don't mind the hottest part of summer. The flowers are beneficial for pollinators and are especially adored by hummingbirds. Some varieties can be grown as houseplants, and select hybrids like Gartenmeister are semi-hardy in areas with mild winters. Fuchsia, you can grow that. What's new in the garden this week? Well, over at the community garden, we're getting a new deer fence and I plucked my French heirloom pumpkin off the vine and brought it home. I didn't get to weigh it, but I think it's at least 15 pounds, maybe even 20 pounds. So super proud and happy of it, especially since I got it in so late uh, in mid-July is when I actually planted the seeds. And in the local gardening world, several upcoming tours I wanted to call your attention to are taking place at Arlington National Cemetery. Uh, Most all of these are free and you can go online and get more information about them at the ANC website, but a few dates I will give you. Memorial Arboretum Fall Rain Garden Tour is Friday, October 14th at 9 a.m. And that's joining Arlington's environmental specialist and horticulturalist for a look at the cemetery's rain gardens and other practices the cemetery has in place to help manage stormwater. The next tour they are hosting is a Memorial Arboretum walking tour on Friday, October 21st at 9 a.m. again. And that's to see the trees of Arlington at the peak of their autumn splendor. And they have an incredible Memorial Arboretum collection, a level three accredited arboretum. So that is not to be missed. 
Uh, they are having a plant tour at the Arboretum the following Friday, October 28th, again at 9 a.m., and that is to join Arlington's horticulturists for a look at the cemetery's niche wall landscape beds and columbarium courts, each a unique landscape design onto its own. And then finally, the Arlington National Cemetery Fall Colors Tour is Friday, November 4th at 9 a.m. Horticulturist and urban forester uh, will lead a walking tour to see the plants of Arlington at their peak of autumn splendor. Also happening in October is the Persimmon Festival at Edible Landscaping in Afton, Virginia. And that's on Saturday, October 29th from 9 to 5 p.m. There will be tours, tastings, and lectures. Everything is 20% off. And looking far ahead in our calendar, but I wanted to let you all know, the 2023 Philadelphia Flower Show has a theme announced, and that is the Garden Electric. Uh, tickets went on sale this week, and they are for the dates of March 4th through 12th back at the Pennsylvania Convention Center in downtown Philadelphia. So the theme is about that spark of joy that comes while giving or receiving flowers. That's the moment that's captured in the Garden Electric, and I can't wait to see how the shows landscape designers and floral arrangers and floral artists interpret that theme for us at next year's Philadelphia Flower Show. Happy gardening! In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jensen Terry Spate, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space while also making a lush outdoor living area you'll crave spending time in. Whether you're growing edible plants or beautiful flowers, the 101 amazing growing ideas found in the urban garden will turn your tiny urban yard into a treasure trove of green you'll be proud to share with family and friends. Buy your copy today at your local retail bookseller or order it online now at amazon.com or bookshop.org. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.